We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. Pop quiz. When interest rates go up, what happens to bond prices? Up. Down. Bond prices go down. Low oil prices, cheap energy is like this magic healing balm that just spreads its its healing energy throughout the economy. And we want low energy costs. We love low energy costs. Elon Musk is going to destroy the the petro states and destroy Putin, destroy you know the Saudis and and uh, you know destroy Exxon and basically bring about an age of cheap and abundant energy just by reducing oil demand a little bit. Wow, go Musk! <laughs> yeah. If you if you ever feel ambivalent about Elon Musk, try reading read a biography of Henry Ford. Welcome to Econ 102, where economist Noah Smith and I make sense of what's happening in the news, technology, business, and beyond through the lens of economics. Let's jump right in. So last week, we talked a lot about China, um, and we did a deep dive on on sort of the the crash that, that's occurring now. And one of the things we talked about is how we didn't think that it would um, you know, deeply affect the US, US economy in, in a negative way. In fact, it might even have positive um, effects. And so on, on, on curbing inf- inflation and rates, et cetera. So I, I thought we'd do a deep dive into the U.S. economy in, in this episode because there's often been a, a difference between what's actually happening and what people feel is, is happening. And, and you've got some, some good posts on this, one of which was a, a, a bit ago called, if this, is, if this is a bad economy, please tell me what a good economy would look like. So maybe we can deep dive on what's actually happening in the economy and and what do people mis- misunderstand and why? Right. Well, so the title of that post was not, you know, just sort of a, a declaration that it's obvious that we are in a good economy. It's actually a real request. It's saying that if you think there would be something better, if you can imagine what a better economy would look like, you know, think about that. That's important to think about. You know, a, a lot of people just get up there and, and you know, complain. Uh, they They say... You know, they, they can cherry pick any terrible thing they read about on some Twitter account. Um, sorry, X, the everything app. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, they, w- when they think about, you know, when were things better? I think that uh, that's a difficult question for a lot of people to answer because, you know, employment rates are really high. You know, labor force participation among people who are of working age has just roared back, um, you know, Practically everyone who has a job wants a job, and in terms of wages, uh, you know there was a there were um, some months when real wages fell, right? And you could say, well, of course people are getting poorer, of course they're upset. But then uh, around summer of 2022, which is a little over a year now, real wages started rising again, and are on their sort of pre-pandemic uh, track. You know, they're, they're still on the trend of growth that they were in the late 2010s, you know, in 2018, 2019. They're, they're still on that growth path. Um, and so there's a question of, okay, well, if it's not that, you know, if wages are growing again, has it just not sunk in yet? Uh, is it just that, you know, wages have only been growing for a year, so we need two or three years of wage growth for people to really realize that the time when inflation could come and just sort of take away their wages suddenly 
is past and that danger is past. I think there's a there's a real argument to be made for that. You know, the the idea that people just don't like inflation because it reduces, you know, a, a bout of sudden inflation drives down real wages because wages can't keep up, uh, you know, with sudden unexpected inflation. And so I think there's this real strong argument to be made that people just hate that. I would hate that. Everyone hates that. And so then if that's truly gone and wages are back to their sort of steady upward climb, then I think maybe we just have to wait. So that's sort of one hypothesis. Um, another hypothesis that a lot of people have brought up is, uh, is mortgage rates. So in order to control inflation, the Fed has raised interest rates to, um, you know, around 5%, uh, 5 and a half. And that's not low in historical context. Like we used to have interest rates that were like, you know, 10%. But it is definitely uh, high compared to what we got used to in the 2010s and the 2000s. We had low interest rates for pretty much that entire time, often all the way at zero. And so there's this idea that, you know, people got used to being able to borrow really cheaply and suddenly it's impossible to borrow really cheaply, for example, to buy a new house, um, you know, or to get a car, whatever you want to borrow cheaply for. Suddenly, uh, you know, that is a shock to people. And people are like, oh my God, I can't borrow, borrow, borrow like I used to be able to. And so then, you know, if that's right, then people will be upset until interest rates start coming down. And so those are sort of two hypotheses. And then a third hypothesis is the vibe hypothesis where it's just like, okay, you know, we had, you know, riots in, in 2020. We had, uh, you know, the, the, the coup attempt in... Um, such as it was in the in January 2021, we've had you know people being thrown in jail and Trump being indicted and bans on abortion and just all sorts of other stuff that makes people feel like we're in this era of unrest, we're in this era of bad feelings, um, and so then uh, you know maybe it's just bad vibes from that era that are just making people look for something concrete to complain about, and so they're like, okay, economy sucks, Biden's economy sucks, and so those are kind of three hypotheses, inflation, uh, you know, mortgage rates, and just vibes. What, what do you think about the argument that this woman, Lynn Alden, makes, who's, um, I think, taking it from Ray Dalio, which is that the debt-to-GDP ratio is extremely high? I believe, I believe she says it's the highest it's been since World War II, and there's this quote she has where she says, uh, whenever a sovereign debt-to-GDP has reached over 130%, 51 out of 52 times, that debt was not paid back in real terms, meaning there was inflation. And so her her argument, or what she takes from this, is that we're going to have kind of persistent medium inflation over the next decade, maybe 3% or, or something like that, um, maybe even a little bit higher, uh, because we're going to have to inflate this this uh, this this debt away. Um, what, what do you think about that? Well, I think that you know the the idea that debt gets inflated away is absolutely right. Um, you know, we did that after World War II, uh, and we're doing it. You know, now with the the high recent inflation actually did help us a bit with our debt levels. We um, in the second quarter of 2020, debt to federal debt to GDP. Now, this is not you know total d private debt or whatever. This is just just the government itself. Um, that reached uh, about 135% of GDP um, in 2020. And, but now, as of Q1 2023, it's only about like 119, 118%. And so that's you know, obviously a substantial decrease. And that happened because of inflation, because inflation erodes debt. Um, you know, inflation increases the number of dollars that are coming into the government's tax revenue uh, you know, and makes it much easier to pay back the debt. And, uh, you know, of course, who gets hurt by that is holders of treasury bonds. And um, uh, 
And so that's absolutely true uh, that inflation erodes debt. Now, the question of does that mean we'll, ha we'll have higher inflation in the future in order to reduce the debt, unpacking that, you know, how would that happen? You can't just say, okay, here's a historical pattern. This pattern will repeat. You've got to have actually a mechanism for how that happens. And here is the mechanism that Lynn Alden and, and probably Ray Dalio, uh, you know, you never know what Ray Dalio is th actually thinking. But here's, here's what they're probably thinking of. Um, the idea that as, you know, as interest rates, um, if interest rates are high, having a very large debt means that the government has huge interest costs to pay. And the last time we were paying huge interest costs was in the 90s. Because, you know, uh, Reagan increased the debt a lot um, in the 80s. And so then we had fairly high interest rates, you know, in the mid-90s. And so interest rate costs for the federal government rose a lot. And that's starting to happen now. You know, the federal government is starting to encounter more interest rate costs. And the higher your debt to GDP, um, or which is really just your debt to tax revenue, the higher that is, the, the more onerous the interest rate costs become. And then the idea then is that the Fed... Uh, has a political incentive to help the government out, to help them pay back their debt, to lower their interest cost burden by lowering interest rates again. And that's a phenomenon that goes by the name of fiscal dominance. So if you ever hear an econ blogger like me talking about fiscal dominance, that's what we mean. We mean that the debt is really high and that um, um, not the deficit, but the debt itself, the stock of, of debt to GDP is high. And what that means is that the, the Fed is trying to help out the Treasury by, uh, by lowering interest rates so that it makes it easier for the Treasury to pay back their, their you know, monthly interest costs. And if that, uh, and if that happens, you know, low rates are inflationary, right? And so if that happens, what that means is that um, low rates uh, are basically inflationary. So, so then low rates will then raise inflation, which will further erode the debt. So even as low rates make it easy for the government to pay back its bills every month, low rates will also cause inflation that will then erode the debt some more. And I think that's what these people have in mind. That, that's a great overview. So do you think it's a reasonable prediction that over the next decade, inflation average will be you know 3% a year? Or, or do you think we'll be able to curb it, get it down to our usual two? Or it's hard to say. Um, there's there's more factors, you know, sort of structural factors. Uh, one factor is um, I think we're going to enter an age of cheap oil. Now that's famous last words because oil prices are famously extremely hard to predict. But there are reasons to think that we're entering an age of cheap oil, and I can unpack that and go into why if you want. But I think that's going to weigh down on inflation, and that's good for us. Yeah, please. Well, yeah, say more about how oil affects uh, inflation, and then what, yeah, why do we think uh, the, the price will be cheaper? Right. So oil prices affect inflation in two ways. The first way is just directly because, you know, gasoline prices, right? You know, you, you, uh, you fill up the, the car at the pump. Um, and then the second way, and also you know, prices for heating oil and all that, all that stuff. And the second way is that oil is an input into production. So if you're a factory that makes anything, or if, even if you're a service company that just drives around, cheap oil makes the, you know, lowers your costs. And so you can pass some of those cost savings on as lower prices, especially when competition, you know, takes hold and forces the prices down. So, um, so it lowers, uh, headline inflation, you know, in the, in the short term. And then in the medium term, uh, you know, through lower costs, it lowers core inflation, uh, just lowers inflation through everything. Oil, low oil prices, cheap energy is like this magic healing balm that just spreads its, it's healing energy throughout the economy, and we want low energy costs. We love low energy costs. 
and it's great for us. And so, so that's one reason. So, so now why are oil prices going to go down um, or, or not go, if, if not go down, then stay down because they're not that high right now. Um, they're like, you know, 80 bucks. Um, but then for Russia, they're 60 bucks. Um, so the first reason is that pricing power has shifted from the sellers to the buyers. So in 1970s and 80s, you had OPEC. Uh, you know, you had all the oil producing countries got together and said, uh, you know, we'll, we're going to cut, cut output to raise prices so that you have to pay us more for our oil. And they did that. And um, that was bad for us. But now, uh, you know, so many countries produce oil that it's very difficult for them to coordinate. Uh, the United States produces tons of oil. We're essentially oil independent at this point. And so, um, uh, you know, uh, now buyers have, you know, are sort of getting concentrated among the U.S., the EU, India, and China, and with just so few big buyers. And part of this is actually just Europe becoming one buyer, you know, the EU becoming a thing. Part of it is the coordination on oil prices we've we've implemented because of the Ukraine war. So if anyone tells you the Ukraine war has been terrible for the global economy, say, well, it gave us cheap oil. Because what it did was it caused uh, the United States and Europe to, to form the anti-OPEC and to drive oil prices down through bargaining. And of course, when we bargain down, when we set like a, a G7 price cap on Russian oil, that means that China and India can afford to pay less for Russian oil too. And now the competition from cheap Russian oil is having to drive down prices for the Saudis to some degree and for everyone else, all the other oil producers. And if you live in an oil producing country, I'm sorry, it sucks to be you, but you know, because like you don't get as much free money out of the ground, but oh well. <laughs> so then, I'm trying to give you those little excerpt clips. Right <laughs> yeah. There. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so basically, um, you know, oil gets driven down by, by pricing power. And the second reason is just EVs, right? So, um, you know, Tesla and BYD and these other EV companies are going to drive down oil prices by reducing demand on the margin. Now, maybe they'll only reduce oil demand by 10%, but oil is famously elastic. You reduce demand by 10%, prices go down by like 40%. It's hugely elastic. You know, little changes in demand just cause monster swings in the price, and that's one reason oil prices are so hard to predict, because because it's so elastic. And so, so basically, now you know, Elon Musk is going to destroy the the petro states and destroy Putin, destroy you know the Saudis, and and uh, you know destroy Exxon, and um, and basically bring about an age of cheap and abundant energy just by reducing oil demand a little bit. Wow. Go Musk. <laughs> yeah. Hate him or love him. Like, uh, you know, you got to give him credit or something. I mean, there's just, yeah, it's just his right. hands are in so many things. Um, and the impact right. is so massive. If you, if you ever feel ambivalent about Elon Musk, try reading, read a biography of Henry Ford. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and you will be like, oh, yes, I see. Yeah. What are the other kind of inputs that affect inflation that may not be fully appreciated or that we haven't covered yet? Um, Effect things that oh so there's also decoupling from from China uh, as we attempt to shift production to places like India Vietnam etc uh, there will be increased costs associated with that temporary increased costs from the cost of actually just moving everything around redoing the logistics building the factories all that stuff but also uh, you know permanently increased costs from the fact that China is this not not increased costs but a a slower pace of of cheapening for things because. Um, China was this one-stop shop that was incredibly efficient at just driving down the price of everything by locating, with, with, you know, they had low costs and 
you know, that they subsidized for everything. But so they were subsidizing our consumption, but also they were extremely efficient because they had all the pieces of the production chain within one area. Right. Um, and so now, uh, you know, production is flowing out of China because people are realizing, oh, my God, you know, the day that they start a war or whatever, then we lose all our investments. That's one reason. And the other reason is that, uh, you know, the government's really cracking down on private foreign private companies. And they think, we, OK, we don't need these, this foreign investment anymore. We don't need to spend our life making stuff for Apple anymore. Like, that's done. We're cooler than that now. We'll make stuff for us. You know, our own companies, Huawei, and, you know, whatever. And um, Anchor, which makes your little, like, plug, your little wall plug. And, uh, you know, Hisense, which uh, may make your TV. Or companies like that. Or Shane, which makes your really bad-looking clothes. And um, that's, that's just tragic. Like, you know, Shane is like, it, we've got the combination of shitty fashion and <laughs> authoritarianism. <laughs> this nexus of all the things I don't like. Uh, anyway, so so down with Shane. But um, <laughs> That's good. down with your bad fashion and authoritarianism. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And so so basically, uh, you know, that will, if not increase our costs, at least mean that we won't see the kind of cost decrease bonanza that we saw, especially in the 2000s, but also a little bit in the 2010s from just China just you know, pumping stuff out and sending those giant container ships, you know, to our ports every day with all the massive amounts of stuff. So, so that, but you know, ultimately when you look at the amount of stuff we consume that's from China, it's not actually that big. So for example, in 2018, which was the peak of our dependence on China, um, China consumed about 3% of the physical goods that we bought. Now 3% is not nothing. That's, you know, 3%. But what that means is that like, you know, that's that's not huge. It's not. It's certainly the idea that everything we have is made in China. Blah 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 was never true, and it's it's less true by the day because we're we're starting to shift production out of China. And I don't just mean in the fake sense of of you know taking Chinese goods, shipping them to Vietnam, slapping a made in Vietnam label, and then reshipping them to America. I mean we're actually starting to do real production processes outside of China, and um, you know China's still in that web of production, but they'll they'll. You know, the longer they keep up their their bad attitude, the more that will erode, the more that position will erode. Hey, everybody. Eric here with a word from our sponsor. We we went through kind of the slightly bearish um, sort of macro argument that Lynn Alden, um, you know, proposed could happen. Um, I want to. And it's realistic. You know, it could could be totally. I want to quickly uh, address Balaji, our friend Balaji's extremely bearish, less realistic um, case which is uh, sort of that American you know, banking system or financial system is uh, greatly vulnerable. Um, w- w- what does he get wrong when he, when he makes his argument or, or just that, that argument in general that, um, that America is in a, in a deeply um, you know, difficult financial place? Well, so one thing you should notice is that if Lynn Alden is right, then Balaji is wrong. So the reason why banks... We're, we're vulnerable, you know, um, earlier this year in my Silicon Valley bank and a couple other mid-sized regional banks failed. The reason was because they had bought a bunch of treasury bonds, long-dated treasury bonds. And um, pop quiz, when interest rates go up, what happens to bond prices? Uh, when interest rates go up, what happens to bond prices? Up, down. <laughs> no, bond prices go down. Because... Um, uh, when interest rates go up, it means that old bonds that have a fixed rate of interest, that they, they get devalued. And so well, when interest rates rose, all the, old, all the bonds 
of the low interest rate bonds that that banks had bought before got suddenly devalued because like, oh, we can get new bonds for a higher interest rate. Why would we get your crappy old bonds? And so then the, the old bonds, you know, that they were all holding just went down. And so those are those, those long dated treasury bonds, those like, you know, 10 year treasuries, 20 year treasuries, whatever, that they were holding on their books um, went down and that weakened their assets and that made them more vulnerable to bank runs like the one that happened on Silicon Valley Bank because, you know, if your assets get vaporized, then people are like, oh, they might not be able to give me my money back and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and everybody runs out to the bank and it's like, the bank won't give me my money and like in Mary Poppins or like in It's a Wonderful Life and then like the bank is just like, well, actually we don't have the money because banks are inherently fragile entities and blah, blah, blah and then it closes and then, you know, like uh, the guy tries to jump off the bridge and an angel has to save him. But... Um, anyway that's a bank run and so that happened because interest rates rose and if lynn alden is right it means interest rates will go down because of fiscal dominance because we need interest rates to go down for the sake of the the, you know government debt and if that happens it'll also bail out the banks in a big way yeah um so if lynn alden's right biology is wrong but even if lynn alden's wrong and interest rates still stay at five percent or whatever for a while um, that 5% probably isn't going up. And so the banks are probably fine. The fact that the big banks didn't even come close to failing. And then, you know, it was just, uh, maybe three mid-sized banks. Um, uh, what were the, what were the banks that failed besides SVB? There was first Republic. Um, there was another one. I forget what the other one was. And then, then there was like the crypto bank that, you know, oh, yeah. uh, I forget in, in called, New York, yeah. I forget what yeah. that's called. Yeah. Yeah. No one cares. Um, so then, <laughs> <laughs> you weren't a real bank. Bye. Uh, so, then, so then, I mean, like no one, no one ever got out there like debit card, like you know, like wow, I'm gonna pay for pasta, you know, at the at the grocery store with my debit card from like Bank of I only serve crypto people. Like that never happened, and so that doesn't matter. And um, and so um, anyway, uh, those nothing else came close to failing, right? It was very contained. Uh, it was not a big deal. They, they rolled out some like emergency lending stuff. Uh, they, they, anyway, they did some minor stuff and the banking system was fine and we're not going to see another 5% interest rate increase unless, you know, there's a war. Uh, now, if there's a war, all bets are off. Like if there's a war, we're going to have to do some more episodes of this podcast real fast. Right. If there's a big war between us and China, all these bets are off and I can't tell you anything. And in fact, we should actually I should write posts like what what would happen to the economy in case of a war with China? That would be a big deal. And so um, but other than that, I don't see reasons for continued bank failures, even if interest rates don't go down. But if interest rates go down, there's like no problem at all. Yeah. So biology is wrong. Sorry, biology. (laughs) I once had a debate with Lynn and I'll Alden. Bet, I, I'll bet Balaji a million dollars. Yeah, that Bitcoin won't uh, won't hit a million dollars. Mm. I um, Lynn Alden. I, I once had a debate with Lynn Alden and Scott Sumner, and Scott was dubious that uh, inflation would get as high as Lynn, Lynn says. He he thought we would just raise taxes um, to to pay for. And he also he was a believer, and this was a year ago um, or, or a while ago. He was a believer that interest rates weren't kept artificially low. That maybe they were just naturally low, um, and Lynn thought that they were being kept artificially low. Well, so the answer to that is that no one actually knows what that means. Um, what is natural versus artificial? Is, there's no clear theory that we know about what 
those are. There are some bullshit theories that don't make any sense that I could tell you about, but they don't make any sense. And um, typically, so, so one perspective you can have is that if you keep rates artificially low, then inflation goes up. And if you keep rate, and if inflation isn't going up, your rates aren't artificially low. And so I think that that's the Scott Sumner point of view. It's, this, it's you know, an almost teleological thing. It's like there is some interest rate called the natural rate, and the way you know you're below it is if you're getting inflation. And so, um, you know, you sort of have to have this faith that interest rates are the main driver of inflation. But, yes, you can, you can believe that. And then, um, so in that sense, in, in, you know, interest rates were too low right up until they weren't. You know, they were, they were too low in 2021, and then in 2022 they were okay, and now we're fine, if you believe that. Um, if you believe that the inflation changes were due to other stuff, then maybe you don't. So um, this natural rate of interest is this ineffable, unobservable kind of thing. You know, um, it's like, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's like this ineffable angel that you can never see, but that holds great power over you. Uh, Lynn Alden's case that interest rates are artific were artificially low, um, I mean, you can easily make that case for 2021, you know, when inflation was rising and we kept rates at zero. Uh, are interest rates artificially low now? Were they artificially low during the 2010s? Um, well, according to the, you know, natural rate view, no, they weren't because we didn't get inflation in the 2010s. We just had smooth sailing, 2% inflation forever in the 2010s. <clears throat> so, like, you know, I guess interest rates weren't artificially low. That's one perspective you can take. To, to take a different perspective, you have to bring other stuff into it and create a new definition of what artificially low would mean. So you can say, okay, well, you know, the low interest rates didn't manifest inflation, but the artificially low interest rates pumped up the value of financial assets too much. So in the 2010s, we got bubbles. Um, did we, though? You know, Thor saying, really, though? <laughs> <laughs> you know, gif. Um, yeah, did it, though? Like, because in the 2010s, if you look at asset prices now, or even after, so, so like in 2022, we had uh, the tech stock crash, right? Yep. Well, fine, it crashed, but it, that crash just wiped out 2021. Like it didn't wipe out 2017, right? Nothing, none of that has gotten wiped out. Housing price rises from then have not gotten wiped out by higher interest rates. None of the, none of the gains of the 2010s in terms of asset prices have gotten wiped out, even though we've done the things that should have wiped them out if they were bubble. And um, the gains of 2021 were absolutely a bubble and got wiped out. Yeah. Um, especially crypto. Sorry, crypto. Although, you know, I don't know, Bitcoin's back a little bit. Yeah. Um, I don't see a case for interest rates being artificially low in the 2010s simply because none of the, the financial value created then has been wiped out, you know, even though interest rates have risen. Yeah. And, um, you know, only 2021 got wiped out. Nothing before that has gotten wiped out. And so, and I don't, and, and there was no inflation. So, like, I don't see... I don't see any case for that. I think that that's just, that's just, that's just wrong. <laughs> um, but, then, but then interest rates being artificially low in 2021 could absolutely see that. Yeah. Let's get into another post that you wrote, which was comparing Morning America with 2023. Because there's this broad, pervasive sense that, hey, um, in the past 30 years, or I guess 40 years, um, um, you know, or even people go back all the way to 1971, and they'll say, hey, you know, we've gotten richer, but most of those gains have gone to rich people and the average person or the average, you know, working class uh, person, you know, still struggles or maybe even struggles more so to pay for their basic needs than they did back then. And, and you, you look at sort of the Reagan era and the promises he made and compared it with, you know, how we're doing today. So why don't you unpack some of the, some of the thoughts there? 
Right. So for those who are too young to remember, which is I think now most people, um, I'm too young to remember, uh, in 1984 there was this ad, this Reagan re-election ad that said, it's morning in America. And, you know, it talked about how inflation has come down. Well, inflation was still like, you know, 8% is, mu- is like, you know, as high as the, the peak of the recent inflation. Um, and interest rates were still really high too. And it said interest rates are lower, allowing everyone to buy a house cheaply. Well, guess what? Those interest rates were a lot higher than they are now. You know, those low interest rates and that low inflation was actually a lot, both a lot higher than they are right now. And yet it was morning in America because in a relative sense, it was better than the 70s. Whereas people now are sort of comparing uh, the 2020s to the 2010s, right? Everybody got very used to this idea where you can borrow money for free and where, you know, in prices never go, you know, they always go up at 2% a year and blah, blah, blah. Very stable, easy, you know, era of borrowing and, and pricing everything. And now you get a little bit of inflation. You get like, um, you know, 5% inflation, 5% interest rates. Oh my God, the world is ending. I can understand that, right? That's, uh, that's what economists call anchoring. It means that you, you don't measure relative to some absolute sort of gauge. You measure relative to your ex- own experience. And we've experienced low inflation, low interest rates for a very long time now. And so there's this shock when it suddenly isn't true. Whereas in the 80s, even, uh, even, even just, you know, 8% was like a big decrease. And so it felt like such a relief. And so that's my basic hypothesis, you know, just for why Reagan could get away with saying everything was great then. And, um, and you know, now uh, it's, it's harder. But at the same time, I think that, you know, as in, you know, inflation's down now to, you know, maybe two and a half, three percent. And it's probably headed lower, honestly. When you look at, when you look at things like new leases that people are, are signing for apartments and you look at the prices of, of rent for the new leases, uh, inflation is probably going to be back down to 2% real quick. And it's already most of the way back down. It's almost entirely back down. So I guess, what do you believe differently than Lynn Alden believes? Well, I don't know what Lynn Alden believes, but then I think that in, in another, if, if good times go on for another one to two years, you're going to see mourning in America become a, another, a meme again. You know, you could always see consumer confidence start to tick up. Uh, consumer confidence, um, maintained the survey maintained by the university of Michigan, I would add, um, <laughs> Go blue. At some point, we have to discuss. Yes, go blue. We have to discuss why University of Michigan people are such great posters. Yeah, yeah, and, um, totally. There was, yeah, there was a post on Twitter that we'll we'll link to that you know highlighted you, Rune, Turner, Novak, uh, a, a number of others. You, uh, yes, obviously me as well. Uh, there's something uh, something in the water there. Uh, Dave Fontenot. Yeah, no, totally. Um, yeah. He has a great group. Yeah, so so. I guess the survey of consumers, the consumer sentiment is already starting to rise. And you see it start to rise as soon as inflation starts to fall. Uh, it hasn't bounced back all the way to where it was, but you know, it's, it's on the rise. Maybe vibes are holding it down or whatever, but then like, it's, it's on the rise now. And so I think if you see, and what you saw in the early 80s was you know, when inflation came down and then interest rates started to come down, you saw maybe a year, you saw like 1982, like things were, you know, that stuff was obviously getting better. But there was no, uh, there was only a little bit of a bounce back in consumer sentiment um, from there, and then maybe that was our 2023. And then in '83, you start to see consumer sentiment rise, and then '84, it, it continues the rise, and, and then you get mourning in America. And so what I'm saying is that maybe by the election time next year, we're going to see people feel much better about the economy, assuming inflation stays low, growth stays good, we don't get a big rise in unemployment. Um, we might, yeah, I think there's a good chance that, we'll, that Biden will be running Morning in America style ads for his reelection campaign, even though we're a little bit, maybe a year earlier in that cycle than, uh, you know, than we were before. 
you know, relative to the election year. So, so I think that um, you know, 2024 will be more like 1983 than 1984 in that cycle. Uh, so we, w we won't have entirely bounced back to like that very high level of consumer confidence. But I think that if history repeats itself, you know, things are going to seem a lot easier next year if just inflation stays low. Yeah. Uh, that's encouraging. What do you think is the right way to think about sort of like attribution, uh, economic attribution for presidents? Like when the economy was going well in, in certain points of Trump's era, you know, people would say, oh, that was Obama. Or, you know, people say Biden's era. Oh, was it Biden or was it Trump? Like, um, how do you think about like who deserves credit when, when, when things are going well? Economic? Like, what's the right way of thinking about it? This is a really, really complicated topic. And in general, presidents get much more credit than they deserve. When you look at how many jobs are created under Biden versus how many jobs are created under Trump, that's all bullshit. You know, like that. So, so don't pay attention to that. But like, um, because there's, there's a bunch of lags here, right? So it can be really difficult because you have to have a theory of what actually causes what in the economy. So for example, um, you know, we had this big financial crisis in 2008. It's easy to blame Bush because he didn't see it coming, didn't head it off. But if you look at the legislation that allowed all those fancy derivatives that ended up crashing and destroying the banks and all that stuff, um, you see that it was under Bill Clinton. Hmm. And so I actually blame Bill Clinton for the Great Recession more than George W. Bush uh, because neither of them saw it coming, but Bill Clinton did the policies that led to it, whereas George W. Bush simply sat there and didn't notice that it was you know, happening. Um, but but everyone else, almost everyone else, didn't notice that it was happening either, and so uh, so I blame Clinton more than more, you know. And so so the bad economy during Obama was, you know, to some degree due to Bill Clinton, right? And so um, and, and to Ronald Reagan, Jimmy Carter, who had both done previous rounds of financial deregulation, but but mostly to Clinton um, and to Bernie Sanders, who supported the Commodity Futures Modernization Act of 2000, by the way, which was the main piece of legislation that deregulated the really scary stuff. But um, so, no, Bernie, you can't complain. <laughs> Occupy Wall Street's about you. Um, you did that. Uh, so then, but but um, really, I think that, uh, so what has Biden done to help the economy? You know, let's not go back to Trump and rehash yeah. Trump. Let's talk about Biden. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of what's, ha what's affected the economy has been the Federal Reserve. But Biden did the American Rescue Plan, which probably exacerbated inflation a bit and put money into people's pockets and, you know, like helped improve employment a bit, right? I don't think the effects were huge on either of those counts, but it, it boosted employment and it boosted inflation. It helped run the economy a little bit hot. Obviously, the Fed keeping interest rates at, at zero for 2021 was, you know, sort of complicit in that uh, for, for both good and bad, you know, for good and ill. Um, and so then there was that. But I think... Um, one thing that Biden did that really has helped the economy a lot is when the Ukraine war started, Biden made a concerted attempt to push down oil prices. They said, okay, oil's the problem. Oil's going to screw us. We saw this scary moment at the beginning of 2022 when oil prices suddenly really spiked and we were like, oh God, is this going to cause, it looked like it was causing the start of a recession. We had actual negative GDP growth, real GDP growth for two quarters. Inflation spiked. It had inflation, you know, just like spiked up. Um, and then in, empl unemployment started to rise, and, and it looked scary. It was a scary moment. That's what high oil prices does for you, right? It's bad. And so Biden's like, okay, I'm going to push oil prices down. And he did it. And he did three things. Number one, he went to Venezuela, and he was like, okay, Venezuela, 
why don't we get you pumping oil again? You know, Venezuela's oil production crashed because of Hugo Chavez and Maduro and their stupid policies where they raided the state-owned oil company, PDVSA, to fund their stupid programs and cronies and whatever. And so Venezuelan oil prices had just crashed. And then we put sanctions on them when they had this electoral chaos. And that was a dumb move by us. But Biden's like, okay, no. You know what? We're going to bring back in the Western oil companies. They're going to help you get oil pumping again. So, so that helped. Um, the second thing Biden did was release oil from the strategic oil reserve, strategic petroleum reserve. He dumped a bunch, and, and that's exactly what that's for. You know, it's for some sort of war-type situation or emergency situation. Um, he dumped a bunch of oil from the reserve onto the markets, and that helped calm down oil prices. But the most important thing, so those were, those were both useful things that Biden did. The most important thing that Biden did, really, was the G7 price cap, was this reverse OPEC. We formed reverse OPEC, and people don't even realize it. And people need to realize how important that is, how for 40 years we lived under the terror of the oil sellers being able to cut off our oil at any moment. And, you know, to some degree, we even got involved in Middle East wars because of that. And now we have just formed anti-OPEC. Anti-OPEC is the G7 price cap, but China and India are unofficial partners in the anti-OPEC coalition. So it's United States, Europe, China, India. Uh, you know, who else buys oil? Like maybe Japan, Korea buy a bit, you know, like some, some, Latin, some Latin American countries maybe. But most of who buys oil is just those four entities. You know, United States, Europe, China, and India. Now they've all agreed they want cheap oil. They want to buy oil cheaply and they're going to pay as low as possible. And the G7 price cap on Russian oil is helping to push down oil prices. And, you know, Russia was this captive producer. Russia can't cut production because it needs to fund its dumbass war in Ukraine. Right. So Russia has to just pump and pump and pump and pump and pump so they can sell as much as possible. Well, guess what happens when you pump and pump and pump and pump and pump? Price go down. And so Russia is just this captive producer who has to sell as much as they possibly can. And we're like, hmm, how about if I pay you a little less or a little less? <laughs> and so then, you know, like we, we are paying them, you know, uh, 60 bucks. We, we don't actually buy our oil from Russia, only a little, very small amount. But that low price cap allows China and India to say, okay, how about we pay you less too? And so we have this unofficial reverse OPEC. And so that, that's Biden. Biden did that. And that has not only uh, goosed the economy and lowered inflation, but that has durably changed the, the state of world oil petrogeopolitics that everyone has been writing about for 40 years you know, the, the, all the petrodollar and the, you know, Daniel Jurgens, the prize and all these things are all based around this idea that the oil price sellers have this pricing power and can choose to turn off the taps. It was all coming out of, of, you know, 1973, not 1971, but 1973. It all comes out of that, that, that defined our world for generation. And now it's, now we've just managed to reverse it and people don't understand the importance of that yet. And Biden did that. So that's helpful. Steelman, the uh, just for to understand both sides, the the sort of uh, the critiques that people have on Biden's sort of impact on the economy. You, you mentioned sort of the 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 positives of of the Ukraine sort of situation, but some people look at all the money that we've spent there or the money we've spent on other stuff. Like, w what critiques of Biden's economic policy are, do you sympathize with, or what's the strongest right. version of that? So people criticize the American Rescue Plan for pumping up inflation, and they're right to a small degree. It did it did exacerbate things. Um, it was, you know, it did, it helped employment and it goosed inflation. Uh, I would have made it smaller than it was. Um, I think that Larry Summers was right about that, but I don't think it was that big a deal ultimately. Um, deficits have come down since then. We have, we have lowered our, now remember the difference between deficit and debt. 
Deficit is how much we borrow each year, while debt is like the stock of debt we're sitting on. Um, so our deficits have, have reduced, um, but not as much as they should have. We should have, uh, we should have cut deficits more than we did. And so Biden is borrowing and spending too much, even though he's borrowing and spending a lot less than, he, than, than we did in 2021. Um, and so, yeah, so, so we, are, we are spending too much. Yes, so there, there is that. And that is not necessarily going to come back and bite us immediately, but it is, it's not helpful and it's something we're going to need to fix and it's going to be slightly painful to fix. And we've kicked the can a little bit on that one. So, uh, so that's going to need to happen. The, the austerity measures that we did with the recent debt ceiling showdown were basically not, nothing. It was, it was bupkis. Um, and so we're going to need to have an actual deficit reduction um, soon-ish because of those high interest rates. Yeah. Because the, new, the deficit uh, adds to the amount of debt that we have to roll over so that when interest rates are 5% and we have this old these old bonds we're paying off that are at 0%. And we have to, we have, and, and then they finish paying off and we have to roll them over and reborrow, you know, then now we're reborrowing at 5% interest rate costs go way up. And the, the higher our deficit every year, the more, the faster we have to roll that over and the faster we have to go from paying 0% to paying 5% on our bonds. Right. And so that's bad. Uh, so we're going to need to cut the deficit for that reason, um, unless interest rates come down rapidly. So Biden has kicked the can on that one. And so, um, so that is a, a criticism that I have. Uh, we should have done more austerity. It wouldn't have hurt the economy. Um, but we, we became a little allergic to austerity during the Great Recession for good reason. Well, for reasons that used to be good and are now just fighting the last war, we, you know, we should have spent a lot more, borrowed and spent more in like 2010, right? We should have done that more then. Um, and everyone was scared. And now we should be, we should be cutting deficits more. And now, again, everyone is scared, and so we're always fighting the last war. And so that's a problem with macroeconomics and, and policy. But um, So that's a problem with what Biden has done. Um, there's a whole realm of Bidenomics that we haven't even gotten into, which is the industrial policy stuff, the you know, IRA, the CHIPS Act, you know, sort of this factory construction boom. It is helping our economy. It, is, you know, it has yet to be seen if it will bear long-term economic benefits. I'm optimistic, but we don't know yet. So I think that people who criticize that are mostly politically motivated because they're just sort of saying industrial policy is always bad or they don't know what they're talking about. Um, I have some friends who, who say this and they don't, you know, Michael Strain is my friend, but he doesn't know what he's talking about on this issue. Um, and so it's just this very knee jerk sort of thing that, that, you know, people from the American enterprise Institute or the Cato Institute do. Um, that's a whole nother kettle of fish. Yeah. Well, let's do another episode. on that. Yeah. Let's do a whole nother episode uh, or, or seven episodes. I don't know. <laughs> In terms of macroeconomic stuff, I think that the continued high deficits, uh, you know, are the are the biggest criticism we could have right now of what Biden's doing. But it's important to realize it hasn't come to bite us yet. Yeah, and um, how do you think about the money that's spent out to Ukraine? Is that is that a drop in the bucket? Is that pretty significant? Is that well, so you know, people need the amount to justified? Could we spend you know, three X and that, that be justified? Not money or? that we're spending, right? Most of that is equipment that we're giving, and so when you take the value of equipment that we're giving to Ukraine. You know, we have a $5 million a rocket launcher and we ship it to Ukraine. And then we say, we paid Ukraine $5 million. No, we gave them a rocket launcher. And people are like, why didn't you send that to Hawaii? Well, okay, we'll send a rocket launcher to Hawaii. What are they going to do with it? <laughs> you know, like we sent them a bunch of rocket launchers and we sent them all these little missiles that shoot down tanks. And we sent them, you know, all these Patriot missile batteries. And we had all this stuff sitting around from the Cold War. 
What people need to understand about the Ukraine war is that to a large extent, it is the Soviet Cold War surplus you know, fighting against the NATO Cold War surplus. It is the stuff they built in the 70s versus the stuff we built in the 80s. It is the it is exactly the war that all the little kids in the 80s with their little binders full of like diagrams of like, here's what our fighter jets can do and here's what their tanks can do and da, 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 all these nerds reading their little, you know, Cold War military fanboy stuff. Like that happened. That those got to fight each other. Finally, you know, like the um, the the HIMARS are, are a little more recent, but then but then essentially we have this surplus crap that we have, it's not crap, it's actually pretty, our, our stuff is better because we built it later and because we're better at engineering than them. And, um, and their stuff is worse, but they have a lot of it. Like the Soviets built up, you know, uh, 13,000 tanks, and I think they still have, you know, at the start of this war, they still had like uh, estimates of 6,000 functional tanks. 6,000 tanks, you know? And they just rolled those into Ukraine, and the Ukrainians are like, okay, we will blow up, and then, you know, blow, blew them up with American, like, shoulder-mounted missiles or whatever, uh, javelins, and, or whatever. And then all those tanks got blown up. And so then this is the war of the surpluses. And a lot of the aid we're giving to Ukraine is surplus stuff. It is not actual money that we're paying. Um, and, you know, to some degree, we will eventually have to backfill that stuff by building new stuff. But we were going to do that anyway because those things would go obsolete, right? The like 1990s vintage rocket launchers are going to go obsolete. That's not necessarily going to be useful against China. We're going to have to build more stuff. We're going to need another defense buildup. And that's a hard conversation that we need to have. We need to have another podcast about that. Um, about the defense buildup that we need, even in a time of austerity, it's going to be painful and difficult. Um, and so, and, and, and that can has been kicked by Biden as well, by the way. Um, and so, but the, the idea of we're spending all this money on Ukraine, first of all, the amount of money we're spending on Ukraine is pretty modest compared to the amount of money we spend on everything else. It's like a small percent of our military budget, even if you value all these rocket launchers at cost, Right. We're not valuing these rocket launchers at their resale cost, right? We're valuing them at what they paid for them. Imagine if you drive a car off the lot, if you, if you, if you drove a car off the lot in like 1996 and you still have that car and you value it at the amount you paid for it from the dealer new, that's how we're valuing the stuff we send to Ukraine. <laughs> and so that's, and, and we are sending some actual cash to like help them pay for imports and stuff like that. We are sending them a bit of cash, but it's a lot less than what you read in the papers. Um, and so most of that is just, you know, Republicans, not even Republicans, because a lot of the Republicans support Ukraine too. I would say half the Republicans support Ukraine. It's really just the, you know, the MAGA people and the, you know, like, I'm anti-war, but really I'm just pro-Russia kind of people, you know, blowing this up. And like anti-Ukraine stuff has become this magnet for just every, every sort of monster of the age of unrest. Every crazy person from the 2010s you know, every RFK Jr. and every, you know, like every crazy leftist and every crazy rightist has, co has coalesced around opposition to helping Ukraine. And it's great because we, get, we have the Ukraine test because all the crazy people eventually just go, go ham on Ukraine. Like all the money we're sending to Ukraine. That's how you know that you're nuts because you haven't actually looked at what we're sending and how much. Right? Even if you value all of it at cost and you value a rocket launcher as actually costing that many millions of dollars... Even if you do that, it's a small percent of our military budget. To say nothing of our total budget, it's like a, just this tiny amount. It's just this thing people harp on, right? But, um, 
but if you look at the actual cash that we're sending, it's like much, much less. And so, so basically this is complete BS. Um, that, the fact that I say that is not going to stop anyone from yelling their heads off about it because it's this amazing, strange attractor of kookiness that is just drawing in all the kooks. But, but this is how unrest ends. This is how the age of unrest of the Trump era and the 2010s and the late Obama era, and, and th this is how the 2010s ends, right? All the people who sort of cut their teeth yelling about um, you know, race war in the 2010s or yelling about this or that, like they will all eventually just gravitate towards kookier and kookier, fringier things until eventually they go away. But that hasn't happened yet. We are still, you know, we're, we've hit the peak of unrest and we're on the downslope, but we're still at a fairly high level of unrest. And, you know, we, we, we still have this PTSD, these scars from this crazy decade that we just went through with riots and coups and, and you know, like just people saying infinite stupid shit on the internet and cancel culture and God knows what. And we're, we're on the downslope of that now. And anti-Ukraine stuff is part of that. Yeah. Ge gearing towards closing of this sort of economy episode, um, let let's close on the other post you, you wrote, which was basically uh, analyzing the song of the of the month, um, which is the, uh, you know, Richmond of Richmond song. I've been selling my soul, working all day, overtime hours for bullshit pay, so I can sit out here and waste my life away. Drag back home and drown my troubles away It's a damn shame What the world's gotten to For people like me People like you And you go into the Richmond, North of Richmond song And say here's where you sympathize And here's where they get it wrong What, um, right. what Why do you unpack that? Oh, so, you know, that song um, Which is a catchy song It's like, um Anyway, I won't sing it. <laughs> we should actually have a clip where I just do the Richmond, North of Richmond song. But basically, he's like, I worked as a factory worker in Virginia. The money sucked. You know, therefore, everything sucks. And the problem is actually welfare paying for people to get fat. So it is absolutely true that manufacturing wages are not high enough, uh, especially in Virginia. Virginia, they've been going down for like a generation manufacturing Virginia has just done not done well. And those people are getting paid bullshit pay, you know, and, um, it's not super livable that, that money. And so the, you know, I would say that, that in a relative sense, Biden's been the best president for the working class that we've had in my lifetime, but that's a very relative sense because, you know, like the working class is still suffering in America and it's going to take decades to, they're doing a little less bad than they were overall. Um, you know, uh, uh, 15 years ago or whatever, or, or let's say, let's say 10 years ago, but not much. And there, you know, so, so he's absolutely right that the work, American working class has a lot of, of problems and that we let this happen. You know, we rich men, North of Richmond and South of Richmond, you know, like it's not just the Yankees. It's, you know, look to the rich men in your own backyard. Um, and you know, after that, after that song, he came out and said, I'm, I'm not just talking about Democrats. I'm talking about Republicans too. I'm talking about all of you, you know, I'm non nonpartisan populist. And that's fine. Cause he's right. You know, it was, it was, uh, uh, there was a joint ignorance by, you know, joint ignoring by Republican and democratic rich men to just, and, and women and women, uh, north and south of Richmond to ignore the working class for generations. And that sucked. And I wish that hadn't happened. And I wish I could have stopped that. Um, and now we're going to fix that. Hopefully I, we better, 
Um, and so he's, he's right about all these problems. But then he goes into this, like, you know, anti-welfare stuff about, like, well, you're fat because welfare is paying for your fudge rounds. And I discovered what a fudge round was. Um, look, okay, you don't... I'm, I'm proof you don't need welfare to get fat, all right? You can, you can make a decent salary and you can get fat off that. Um, anyway, but <laughs> that makes no sense. Like, poverty isn't going to keep people fit and healthy. <laughs> like, um, there's, there's this whole debate, giant debate over whether food stamps, and, you know, exacerbates obesity. And the consensus seems to be that, you know, maybe it does, but just a tiny, tiny bit. It's like not, you know... Most of obesity is from the fact that we drive everywhere and our food's loaded with sugar. That's, that's why we're fat. Because we drive everywhere and our food has a ton of sugar in it. All right, that's why we're fat. And, um, you know, so like walk a bunch and don't eat sugar. I don't know. Like, and especially for kids. Point being, he doesn't know who to lash out at. He knows what the problem is, but he doesn't know who the villain is in this, in this story. He imagines these rich men in D.C., you know, doing all these bad things to him. And he's right. They are there, and they're doing bad things to him. But he doesn't know how they are. And that's one of the problems of this disengaged working class and all the disengaged voters who went for Trump in 2016 but then largely went for Biden in 2020 um, and ought to go for Biden again because Trump is just garbage and, you know, he's, you know we don't need that back. And um, we don't need the Trump era back. But then, you know, maybe they'll go for Vivek. Maybe they'll go for some guy like RFK. I don't know who the disengaged people will go for, but the fact is we're, we are not helping them. And he's right about that. The very fact that he has no idea what the problem is economically, he just sees the bad effects. He doesn't know the cause. And the fact that he doesn't know the cause is, is also partly a factor of, it's also partly a result of the fact that we've just forgotten about these people, you know? And, um, so he's, he's absolutely right to complain. And, you know, and yeah, rich people have screwed him over and it sucks. And we've got to fix that. Uh, but, but, you know, cutting food stamps isn't the way that that's going to happen. And the way that it's actually going to happen to fix this, there's, you know, a lot of things we need to do for the working class. We're just now starting to increase union power a little bit to improve overtime rules. Biden is doing both of those things to increase factory construction and pump up factory jobs. Those are three things Biden has really done. Um, like I said, in a relative sense, Biden's the best president for the working class in my lifetime. In an absolute sense, we still haven't done nearly enough. That's a good note. Well, last question then is in a chat, I just put this link. It's called WTF happened in 1971. And I'm, I'm curious if you can take a quick look. These, these graphs aren't foreign to you, but just as an example of like, um, and I'll put oh, yeah. them in the show notes I know, as I well. Know the, I know every graph on that site. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you do. Are, are they bullshit? Are they real? Like, what, what, is, what, are the, you know, what should we take from, from this? They're all absolutely real. And the, um, the cause is not mysterious. And the only problem with that site is that it got the year wrong. It was it's, 1973. Got it. And it's, it's the oil stuff that we're talking about? Or what, what, what is oil. it? Called? It's oil. So there's a, there's a curve that you should look up called the Henry Adams curve, um, where uh, energy and GDP went together. They rose together, not, not at the same slope, but they rose in tandem uh, for, uh, for many, many, many years as we got, you know, because in, in 1700, we, what were we using for energy? We were using muscle power. We were using cows. We were chopping down wood and burning it, and we were burning uh, animal poop. That was our energy, right? And then from then, you, uh, we got coal. 
and, coal, and the steam revolution. And then we got oil and natural gas. You know, it helped. But whatever. It was mostly just coal and then oil. And energy got cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And we kept getting cheaper oil. And if you look at real oil prices, they were like down, 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 down. And then you get these movies about 1960, like, like um, uh, American Graffiti, you know, George Lucas's sort of breakthrough hit. Uh, where these guys just drive these giant muscle cars and gas is incredibly cheap. And there was this, you know, we just built everything with, you know, with, with super cheap energy from oil. Uh, but coal was the first part of that and then oil. And so we just used more and more energy and more and more economic growth. And it was this, and then what happened in 1973? The age of cheap oil came to an end in a day, right? And that day was Yom Kippur of 1973. And on Yom Kippur, Arab countries went to war with Israel America helped Israel fight them off, uh, you know, kind of like we helped Ukraine fight Russia off, but um, we helped Israel fight them off, uh, and then the Arab countries got mad, and then they cut oil output, and the age of, and then they realized, oh my God, we have the pricing power, and we can just raise prices for oil. And the age of cheap oil came to an end, and if you look at the Henry Adams curve, which matches GDP with per capita energy use, it's like in 73. That's the curve. All the other curves are that curve. <laughs> that is the one curve because we switched, you know, as Peter Thiel would say, we switched from atoms to bits on that day because atoms innovation requires cheap energy as an input. All, at, you know, rearranging atoms requires energy. Rearranging bits requires energy, but just a hell of a lot less. And so we started dematerializing our economy. We started going to computers and the internet and things like that, um, which have many, many benefits, but don't look the same for our economy. As, the, as, as just flooding with energy. And so that's what happened, and it was 1973, and I wish they'd called the website, what the fuck happened in 1973, because then we'd know. And w was there a world in which that impact happened and it didn't lead to all these gaps in, um, in sort of you know, middle class versus up, you know, upper class? Like, was it just necessary that, that that's how it had to turn out? We don't know, but probably. My yeah. guess is that yes, that that, that was... Because um, energy intuitively... This is a point Tyler Cowen has made, by the way. Intuitively, energy is something that even an average person can easily use. You go out and you look at a steam shovel. Look at that steam shovel. It's this big, powerful thing running on so much energy and it's like, you know, shoveling... Uh, you know, gravel or whatever, it's, it, or it's helping to make like the foundation for like a house or any of those big machines, right? Those machines are driven by people with a high school education at best. And, um, you know, my dad was a construction worker. He was a construction worker, uh, you know, to put himself through college, whatever. He would do construction work in the summers. And he would work, he, they knew this guy, um, I'll always remember this, this guy who everyone just called Snotlicker. Because in the 1960s, that was, so that was a nickname you'd have in the construction job. This guy did not go to high school. He dropped out the day he was able to drop out, right? He couldn't, he was probably illiterate. He was a wizard with a, with a steam shovel and a backhoe. And he could just pilot these things insanely competently. Um, you know, and, and nobody messed with the guy because he, he was a famous knife fighter. But he was amazing with the, the, with the steam shovel and the backhoe. And he got a decent, he got paid a decent wage. This is in uh, East St. Louis. And, um, and so that was energy. We put the energy into the machine so that this guy with, not, with no education could, could earn a decent wage, you know, just using these machines like playing a video game and getting really good at this video game, right? It's like energy is what turns video games into physical stuff. And when we stopped being able to do that, when we stopped being able to do that cheaply, 
what that meant, bits innovation is complementary to the human mind, right? And so it started to become nerds like us that gain the upper hand in the economy. And the benefits of the economy went to nerds like us. We're good at rearranging bits. You know, we couldn't necessarily pilot a steam shovel any better than Snotlicker could. But we can sit there and code and code and code, and, and he's not able to, to do that. He doesn't have the educational background. He can't even read. Like, he doesn't have the educational background to be able to do that, and yet nerds do. We went to college, and we sat there doing boring worksheets and der-der-der. <laughs> well, you know, like, while you were partying, I studied the blade. But then we <laughs> yes. get you know, but then, but then we got rich, and then, and then we partied. Um, and so then the world became a world for us, this world of bits innovation. This, um, and by the way, we need another uh, episode on this. There's like 20 things we need another episode <laughs> on. But I am hopeful that AI will take our mojo. I am hopeful that AI will, will devalue the nerds a little bit <laughs> and allow average people to program computers. Wow. You know, um, and I am, I'm hopeful that the age of the nerd, but also, so AI, but also cheap energy is going to come back. And yeah. people don't realize that yet. When cheap energy comes back and the Henry Adams curve starts up again, 1973 will be canceled. And then someone will write a very, you know, someone will make a very nice looking website about how things got better and said, what the fuck happened in 2023? <laughs> yeah, it's a good place to go. I mean, it's funny if a couple decades ago was Revenge of the Nerds or something, you know, maybe it's to be Revenge of Everybody Else or the Jocks the or whatever. Yeah, the Normies. Revenge of the Normies. The Normies. That's good. That's what uh, I want. We'll, we'll, we'll close on that. We have uh, some cliffhangers for future episodes. Uh, this is another banger. Uh, Noah, until next time. Until next time. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together.